All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to the house. Good morning. My name is Greg. If you've never met me, I'm one of the pastors here at the house. And today we are continuing our walk through the Gospel of Mark. We're calling it the first gospel because even though it's not the first one you come to when you open your Bible, it was the first of the gospels that was written. And so we are walking our way through that for a solid like 16, 16 weeks, I think, right? So we're like in the fifth week, I think. And so uh, today we are going to jump right into Mark chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles out on the bookshelf. You can take one of those on your way home if you'd like. Otherwise, uh, you can download a, a Bible from a digital app store. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and that's the neighborhood that, that Mark lives in. And we try to give the scriptures our full attention when we read them, and we have a tradition of doing that in any number of ways. The primary way would be to stand as you are able or as you prefer as I read the scriptures aloud. So this is Mark chapter 4, going to start in verse 26. It says this. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come again. He said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? Is it, it is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that birds can perch in its shade. Many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Let us pray. God of every tribe, every tongue, every color, every nation, we thank you for the scriptures, the scriptures that have persisted throughout the millennia that we still have today that we can look at, read, consider, be guided by. I pray that today, whatever you have for us to learn, I pray that that thing would stick, that it would become a part of the framework of our faith, that our faith would become stronger as we become more like your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, all. You can have a seat. All right, so today I want to talk about the kingdom of God. Uh, any Princess Bride fans in the room? Surely many. Uh, I feel like the phrase, kingdom of God, reminds me of the quote, you keep on using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Because <laughs> surely you've also heard the phrase, kingdom of God. We keep hearing about the kingdom of God in the book of Mark. John the Baptist proclaims it, Jesus preaches it, and now he actually starts telling stories about it. He's describing what the kingdom of God is like. But even though he announces it, proclaims it, begins to teach it, Jesus isn't exactly straightforward about what it is. I don't just mean for us as we read it 
today. I'm talking about for the first hearers. Mark literally says, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. He spoke to them as much as they could understand. So Jesus is talking about it, but he's intentionally not explaining it in simple and straightforward terms. And then Mark says, but when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. But when Mark but then Mark doesn't write down all of the explanations for us. So here we are reading the scriptures, and we don't necessarily have a straightforward explanation about everything Jesus taught either. And so today, we're putting some of the pieces together. We're talking about the kingdom of God. What is it? When is it? What does it look like? How do we live in it? So I have three words to help with our understanding of the kingdom of God. And like any good pastor, I use alliteration. Permanent, present, potential. Permanent, present, potential. The kingdom of God is the permanent, present, potential of Jesus on the earth and in the church today. All right, so first, the kingdom of God is permanent. We tend to have a hard time wrapping our minds around the concept of a kingdom because we have democracies and mayors and elected officials. We think of republics and constitutions and voting, but most of the rest of the world for most of the rest of history had kingdoms with singular rulers, an emperor, a chief, a king. And they all had beginnings. You can open a book and And read the story of when this kingdom began and when that kingdom ended. And so that tends to be how we think about the kingdom of God. We think that the kingdom of God began when the ministry of Jesus began. Oh, there's that date. Oh, that's when Jesus was baptized. Oh, that's when he begins proclaiming that the kingdom of God is... No, he doesn't say the kingdom of God has begun. He says the kingdom of God has come near same thing that John the Baptist says. They don't proclaim the idea that, hey, a kingdom that never was is now here. They're saying that a king that has, kingdom that has always been is now visible in a new way. It's now accessible. in a new, It has come so close that you can no longer ignore its existence. Because here's the thing. If God is God then it follows that God has always been king. Whether humans acknowledge that or not, humans have often not. Instead of choosing and acknowledging God as king, we choose our own ways. We choose our own fruit from the trees that we choose. We want and we choose our own rulers, and our own kingdoms. We see this happen in the story of the Israelites. Yeah, after they'd been in the promised land for a while, what happens is that they look around and they realize that, hey, every other kingdom has a king, has a human king. So what they do is they get the high priest, Samuel, and they say, hey, go tell God that we want a king like everyone else, just a regular guy. They wanted to replace God 
with the human. Of course, why would they want God as their king, the king that stole them out from their slavery and saved them from Egypt, splitting the sea, creating daily bread out of thin air, leading them with pillars of cloud and fire, literally breaking the barrier from what perceivable heaven and earth were, making water spring from rocks and giving them a home and a land to call their own. Why would they want that when they could have a regular guy? Like everyone else. But just because they, and just because we, and actually, when Samuel goes to God and tells him that Samuel's feelings are hurt, and God says, hey, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Just because we reject God as king and put earthly men on thrones, God doesn't stop being the king of kings. Or the Lord of lords. I, I don't like to bring up politics a whole lot from the pulpit, but this reminds me of what happens here in America after a new president gets elected. It, I've seen it in at least the last few elections. There's always a small contingency of people that will say something like this. Not my president. As though saying that somehow made, magically makes that person not their president. But what any one of us says doesn't change the reality of what is. If I am a citizen of the United States, then whoever holds the opposite of president is my president, for better or worse, whether I believe it or not, whether I agree with them or not, whether I think they're a good person or not. And human beings, when we say, not my God, not my king, while we can have honor and respect for each other, understanding and empathy toward different religious backgrounds and create space for diversity of how we believe in that God, at the same time, what we say or think does not change what is. That if there be a God, if there is a God, then what we choose on earth doesn't change the nature of what or who that God is. Even if I'm standing here in the center of the concept of Christianity and I have it all wrong, everything that I'm saying right now does not change the nature of who that God is. So if God is king as the concept of Christianity would teach that he is a good king, then God is king even when we do not know it. So the kingdom of God is permanent. Second, the kingdom of God is present in the person of Jesus. Jesus makes the kingdom visible again. One of the reasons... Uh, if, if you go back and you listen to, to the sermons, I've brought this up a lot. One of the reasons that so much of what happens in the Gospels with Jesus keeps pointing back to what happened in the First Testament in the history of these people was so that they would think, so that we will think, hey, I remember when God did that before, when, when God proved his presence, when God proved the goodness of his kingdom before, way back when. The Spirit hovered over the waters. At creation, look, the Spirit descends upon Jesus. At his baptism, humans were tempted and sinned. Look, Jesus is tempted and resists the tempter. Moses 
brought the 12 tribes out of Egypt. Look, Jesus is choosing 12 disciples on the mountainside. The prophets healed the sick. Look, Jesus is healing entire crowds of people. Way back when, human beings rejected God and wanted a man for king. And now look, God has made himself a man. Do you know how brilliant that is? You rejected me as God king. You wanted a human being, so here you go. I will become a human being. I am giving you what you asked for. The kingdom is permanent. The kingdom of God is present. And the kingdom of God is potential. But not perfect? Why, why not perfect? If God is perfect, if Jesus is the perfect king, why is the kingdom not perfect? And Greg, I don't know if you noticed, but perfect starts with P as well. You could have kept the alliteration going with that. But I can't use perfect because the kingdom is not perfect yet. Because people aren't perfect yet. The New Testament scholar Scott McKnight says this, The kingdom now is not the perfect kingdom of the not yet. And that means kingdom citizens now are not yet perfect, not yet fully loving, not yet fully holy, not yet fully just, and not yet fully peaceful. In other words, the kingdom is now. Jesus is present, but the kingdom is also not yet. Because we are not yet fully like him. One day, Jesus will come and make all things new, and then, when we, when all things are made perfect, then the kingdom will also be perfect. But until then, the kingdom of God here on this earth isn't perfect. It is the permanent, present potential of Jesus on the earth and in the church. And here's the thing. Misunderstanding this concept causes a lot of problems. Another P. Here's something else that Scott McKnight said. When we compare the kingdom to church, most people make fundamental logical errors. The most common is to compare the future kingdom and the present church. But because the kingdom is now and not yet, the church is also now and not yet. He says we have to judge the church today on where we are in the timeline of God's kingdom. It's kind of like, as a parent or a teacher, how often do we have to remind ourselves that the decision that a child just made is probably not all that bad of a decision if you keep in mind how old they are. You're 25, you're 36, you're 48 or 60, and you're looking at an eight-year-old thinking, well, they shouldn't have done that. They're an eight-year-old. <laughs> in the timeline of where they are in the concept of life, it makes complete sense that they did what they did when they did it. And has Jesus returned yet to make all things new? 
Not yet. Then the church is also not yet perfect, but we tend to want to declare that if Jesus is perfect, Jesus is present, and his kingdom is here, and the church follows Jesus, shouldn't the church also be perfect? But the answer is just no. Because while the kingdom is permanent, and the kingdom is present through Jesus, the kingdom, by its nature, chooses to live in the space of potential rather than perfection. Because unlike other kings and kingdoms, Jesus doesn't destroy his detractors in the name of hunting down all imperfection. Jesus doesn't trot around the countryside on horseback, cutting the people down that claim he is no king. That claim in their heart, there is no God. Jesus doesn't expand his kingdom in the way of Rome or in the way of empires. Instead, the kingdom of God is like a man that scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. The kingdom is like a mustard seed which is the smallest of the seeds on earth, yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in it. The kingdom of God is comfortable in the arena of potential instead of perfection. Because as one theologian wrote, the kingdom of God does not force itself upon us. Potential is something that we have to choose each day. You see this in the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. When he said, Our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come where? Thy will be done on earth as it is. So the kingdom of God is permanent and it is present and it has as much potential as it ever has when we pray the way that Jesus told us to pray. And what he taught us is a prayer of potential if you're paying attention. So let us pray together. The Our Father. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen.